My name is Matthew Taylor. I'm the Chief Executive of the RSA here in London. While we have faced challenges before, this one is different. Stay at home, protect lives, and then you will be doing your part. What I want to know is just how could and just how should the world change after this pandemic? So that's the question I'm putting to leading experts. It feels like it's life and death for people's businesses, their jobs, their hopes for the future. Renowned thinkers. All you want is a hug, to be honest with you. If you're living alone in this era, there are no hugs. And global leaders. China and the United States are going to emerge from this crisis significantly diminished. Welcome to Bridges to the Future. Responses to COVID-19. So I'm delighted to be joined today by an old friend of mine, James Crabtree. James, you're an academic, you're a writer, you're a journalist, but introduce yourself to our audience. My name is James Crabtree. I'm an associate professor in practice at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy in Singapore, but I describe myself as a recovering journalist and pretend academic. I used to work in the Prime Minister's Strategy Unit under Prime Ministers Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, then moved to Asia with the Financial Times, spent some time in India, wrote a book about India, and then ended up in Singapore at the end of that. And I'm now hiding out here and waiting for all of this COVID business to pass. I think you're allowed to give your book a name check, James. It's a very good book, incredibly readable. The Billionaire Raj, yeah? There we go. Yes, about the rise of India's new super rich and the political economy of India that came along with it. So, James, you're in Singapore, and I think it's a big moment for you in terms of lockdown, yeah? Yeah, well, we're recording this on Monday evening, my time. And so two hours ago, we finally got word that the most significant stage of the lockdown is being lifted later this week. So restaurants will be open, bars will be open, swimming pools will be open. So most of the things that people have really been missing are going to come back, we hope, at the end of this week. So there's a mood of celebration around Singapore this evening. And what does that mean in terms of social distancing? Because there's a big debate here about whether to reduce the two metres. Is social distancing gone as well? Or are people expected to enforce it voluntarily? It's not quite clear exactly how they're going to do that. In schools, they've been trying to do social distancing. You're made to queue up outside malls. I'm not clear. I think Singapore has gone for a lower one meter recommended limit in particular because some of the iconic hawker centers in Singapore, the two meter rule would never have flown in the first place. They just get too crowded. So I think they've gone for a a smaller distance than in the UK. I've heard that the reason it's two metres in Britain is not because it needs to be two metres. It's because the assumption is if you set it at one metre, people would then make it into a foot. So you have to kind of make it two metres in order that people will actually observe one metre. Could it be that in Singapore you can have one metre because people actually observe the rules? It's possible that across East Asia there's been a debate about the extent of social compliance which is a slightly thorny issue because on the one hand, it gets into slightly racially toned stereotypes about sort of browbeaten Asian publics and their autocratic governments. But there clearly is some truth to this, that in Japan, in South Korea, people have been slightly better at following the government guidelines, often indeed without the government even having to issue them. So there may be something about slightly less individualistic cultures being more willing to do what they're told and to follow the recommended guidance as the government sets out. I am in a moment going to turn to the core question of our podcast. But you see, the problem is all your answers are so fascinating. They lead me off in other directions. And you just talked about the danger of kind of racial stereotypes. 
how has the Black Lives Matter movement been observed from where you are? Has it been a story? How have people interpreted it? It's a fascinating moment because I think above all, what it tells you, in addition to the deep and divisive politics of race in countries like the United States and the United Kingdom, is the power that the United States still has as a cultural transmitter that a black man is killed by police brutality in the United States. And all over the world, suddenly there are you know marches and supporting demonstrations. But actually in Singapore, that's been reasonably muted for reasons of political, culture and legislation. There isn't much in the way of marching and protesting here at the best of times. And there's almost no people of African descent. So the people talk here instead about the problem of Chinese privilege, because it's the ethnic Chinese majority in a country like Singapore who hold that position in society that is comparable to the, the white privilege that we talk about in the West. And so although you've seen Black Lives Matter marches in Australia, you know, a number of other countries around the region, even in the Philippines, you haven't had it so much in a country here like Singapore. But it's fascinating, isn't it? Because it's not that ethnicity is not an issue and has not been an issue in terms of COVID in your part of the world. I mean, I think I'm right in saying that in South Korea, for example, it was amongst immigrant workers who were living in you know, pretty shoddy housing that a kind of second wave started, for example, which meant the government had to do something about that. So has there been any sense in which the COVID crisis has refracted some of these issues around ethnicity and systematic differences? Well, I think what you're talking about there is what happened in Singapore. It's exactly what happened. So Singapore had a, from the beginning, let's say this started in the middle of January, for about the first two months, Singapore had a gold star reputation, much like Taiwan and South Korea. It was one of the best countries. And then we had a second wave, truly a third wave that hit migrant dormitories. So Singapore has a population of about 6 million people. It's a small island nation about the size of Zone 2 in London. About 1 million of those 6 million are migrants, of whom about 300,000 are South Asian construction workers, basically from either the southern part of India or from Bangladesh. And there was a huge outbreak, and there continues to be a huge outbreak amongst the migrant worker population. And so, yes, it's asked all sorts of uncomfortable questions in a country like Singapore, which is rich, prosperous, and very well organized, but has this, I don't want to call it an underbelly, but it has a high reliance on immigrant labor. And that immigrant labor is obviously much less prosperous than the rest of the country as a whole. And so it's caused a kind of moderate degree of soul searching about the conditions in which these people live in dormitories, often a dozen to a room, and also the level of social inequality that has come across almost all of Asia. So in my book about India, I write about the huge increase in inequality in India over the last two or three decades. But Singapore as well has much higher levels of inequality than it used to have when it was in its early stages of economic development, when it was an Asian tiger. And so yes, COVID has revealed in Singapore as it as in many other countries, the underlying structure of social inequality and pose some awkward questions about what the state needs to do next to remedy that. Thank you for correcting me that it was indeed Singapore, not South Korea. But that's interesting because I think the historically the Singaporean government's approach to this issue has been quite paternalistic. I mean, they've worked very hard, haven't they, to ensure that communities don't get segregated, for example, in relation to housing policy. Yeah, Singapore is very interventionist in almost all areas of policy. And that has upsides and downsides. But the former deputy prime minister here, a guy called Tarman Shanmugaratnam, who's very 
clever guy has a line that he tends to use, which is Singapore is the only country in the world where you have poor people, but you don't have poor neighborhoods. It's not 100% correct, but it's pretty much correct. And that's because the government social engineers its public housing system to ensure that every housing block mirrors the population as a whole. So you can't get agglomerations of those groups who are underprivileged, particularly those who come from the ethnic Chinese majority. And so they have very restrictive systems to stop ghettoization and to stop homophily amongst poorer groups and, and other systems as well. And they're very aggressively multicultural. If you do anything which smacks of rabble rousing in the cause of minority groups, and that's seen to be bringing about or social disharmony, and that can land you in jail pretty quickly. And so the upside of that is that you have a government that speaks up for minorities, that doesn't allow people to criticize minorities, but that then comes with an awful lot of social engineering along with it. I said I would ask you a question, so I need to ask you that question because it's not fair having prepared you for it. Although we could just carry on talking about this and hopefully we will return to it when you do answer the question that we ask everybody on this podcast, which is, James Crabtree, how do you think the world could and how do you think the world should change after this pandemic has finally passed? I think sitting here in East Asia or Southeast Asia, in my case, then the obvious risk is that in the aftermath of the pandemic, you're going to get a great hardening in views about the relationship between East and West, particularly between Europe and North America and China, and that that could set off a very destructive series of events with consequences for all sorts of things that you've talked about with your guests on this podcast, from climate change to much else besides. I mean, I think that the more positive side of what's happened over the last period is that, you know, for those of us who have worked in public policy and who you know believe that good policy makes a difference in life you've seen this extraordinary divergence between countries that have managed this crisis well and those that haven't and a lot of them happen to have been in this part of the world in in east asia and so i think that that provides a bit of a reckoning for the countries in the anglosphere who have Many of them have done less well than you would expect. But it also means that there's something that we can now learn from the emerging rich industrial countries in East Asia whose states operate in different ways and have different capacities and have performed much better. And so rather than a kind of hardening between East and West with a bit of luck, one of the results out of this is that there'll be a kind of curiosity and a willingness to learn from others' systems and a kind of cross-pollination of ideas, not just so that a pandemic like this doesn't happen again, but more generally so that people in the West can learn from Singaporean housing policy or South Korean education policy or whatever it might be. James, you're a lot younger than me, but I guess even so, you've seen these cycles that we have where there comes a point where everyone decides that one country or one set of countries has solved all the problems and we should therefore copy them. And it was Japan, I think, in the kind of 70s and 80s, and then it became Germany at various points as well. So we seem to be potentially in one of those moments again where people will say, well, let's look at Singapore, let's look at Taiwan, let's look at South Korea. But we know from those previous cycles that often the lessons that are drawn are not the right lessons. It's a rather kind of crude form of comparative policy making that takes place. So what do you think are the lessons that a country like Britain should be drawing from the success of those countries? And what do you think are the obvious mistakes that we could make if we thought we could simply kind of translate best practice? 
It seems pretty clear to me, having been out of the UK for almost a decade now, that there has been a, a kind of degradation of policymaking capacity in the UK. And that's really nothing to do with COVID. I mean, it started out with the financial crisis and the austerity that followed and the slimming down of the civil service and then ran through Brexit. Those are quite distinct reasons from what's happened in the United States, where the US political system, its decline seems much more structural. It simply doesn't have enough centralized authority to get anything done, what Francis Fukuyama calls a vetoocracy has taken, you know, you just have a kind of sludge of decision making. And so these two countries that have learned substantially from each other and have been great innovators in public policy, you know, through the 1980s and the, the Thatcher-Reagan revolution, through what happened with Clinton and Blair, in a sense, have neither funded their political systems as well as they used to, nor being as innovative as they used to. And then some of these East Asian states have caught up. They spend a lot of money on public services. They have learning states in as much as they're very good at hoovering up ideas from elsewhere around the world. They're particularly good with technology. They have many problems that go with them. You know, They don't have the strong culture of rights and privacy that we tend to admire. They're far from perfect. But I think there is something that you can learn the problem, as you say, is what kind of learning can you take back? So something like Singapore's housing system, which is a miraculous thing to behold when you first get here, 80% of the population live in public housing. The public housing is cheap and of very high quality. Almost anyone who wants from any income bracket will be able to buy a reasonably decent home by the age of 30, which seems unimaginable in the UK. But it would be very difficult to copy that in a country like the UK, where A, it's not a city state, and B, the government doesn't control all the land. So you can't kind of adopt these things wholesale. You have to look at the kind of basic outline of what some of these governments have done, which is invest in high quality public services, find ways to spend enough money so that you hire some of the best people in your society to go and work in them, invest in technology seriously, and find a way to be able to start planning for the long term. That's one of the things that's most admirable about Singapore's sort of public culture, that not just in areas like infectious diseases, but in all sorts of things from technological planning to climate change, they have a, a kind of culture of long term termism, which is something that policy experts in the UK have long tried to inculcate, including you and others, but which has never quite taken hold. Of course, one of the things we have to do is to recognise that these are very different countries. And one of the things that I hadn't realised until I prepared for my interview with Audrey Tang from Taiwan is that actually in I don't know if there was other countries as well, James, you'll tell me, but I know that in both South Korea and in Taiwan, there has been a moment in the last few years when there's been a kind of uprising of students and civic groups in the face of what was deemed to be too centralizing or too paternalistic. I mean, Taiwan, the particular issue was, I think, a trade deal with China and the possibility of the Chinese state-owned enterprises taking over the technology system. I think in South Korea, it was a response to a particular incident or a sense of the state not doing what it was supposed to do. So in these countries, which is probably different from Singapore, part of their story has been that there's been a shift towards civic sector and a kind of model of technology, which is very much about empowering people. Singapore kind of sits in the middle, I guess, does it, between that kind of very citizen-focused kind of model and obviously China at the other end, which is much more kind of centralised and authoritarian. Yeah, I think Taiwan and to a lesser extent South Korea are really the best examples for Westerners to look at what you can learn from East Asian democracy because Taiwan's democracy is as rambunctious and rough and tumble as any that you'd find in the West. And Taiwan's political culture also slightly gives the lie to this 
as I said, what I mentioned at the beginning, this slightly racially tinged notion of kind of meek, subservient East Asians who doff their caps and do whatever the government tells them to do, because that's really not how the public in Taiwan behaves at all. But what's interesting about what you see in Taiwan, and to some extent, South Korea, is the, as you say, the level of technological innovation and openness. Now, that's been true within the pandemic. And that's been interesting to watch because one of the things that happened in previous pandemics that was true as recently as 2015 with the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, but it was certainly true of SARS in the early 2000s, was that governments in Asia were accused of hiding information, almost all of them. South Korea in 2015, was its government was widely criticized for not fessing up to how bad the MERS outbreak had been. One of the things that you've seen really across the region, apart obviously in China in the early stages of the outbreak, is that governments have been pretty open with their publics about what's been going on. They've learned a lesson about the degree of openness that is ideal for dealing with these kind of pandemics. And particularly in Taiwan, and particularly because you have a visionary figure like Audrey, who you had on your show on the previous episode, you've seen a lot of technological innovation that's come out of that openness. They're very good at putting public data online, of trying to get ecosystems of civic hackers to play around with that data. So for instance, there's a, I can't remember if she talked about this, but that there was a, a site that somebody put together which told you where you could get your masks when masks were being made available and it was built by civic groups. And I think it was taken over by the government who then scaled it up and made it national. There's been quite a lot of these, particularly in Taiwan and South Korea, there's been quite a lot of this civic kind of innovation, which is not an alien model in the UK and the US, which have also been trying to find ways of using openness and public data to improve public services. But it certainly shows that there are things that you can learn from these examples from Eastern advanced industrialized democracies. So one of the articles that you recently tweeted was one that said we need to understand the distinction between democracies and civilizations in the sense that you know what legitimizes China Chinese authority at least in its own eyes is the sense that it is standing up for a particular culture and history and that in a sense is its destiny. I'm interested in your sense of the choices that China faces because what's interesting to me about this conversation is that a lot of the dynamism in the region is from places which are open, which are democratic, which do devolve power. And those, in a sense, seem to be the places which have the capacity to really challenge the West. I mean, the West is already challenged, but in, in a sense, just in terms of its kind of effectiveness as a form of rule. But that isn't what's going on in China. And so what we've seen in China in more recent years is actually slightly more authoritarian regime, more centralization of power. So from a kind of Chinese perspective, as they look at the almost certainty of ever growing global power, do they have a choice between that more authoritarian and centralized model that we've seen in recent years? Or is there any possibility of a more reformist approach, which actually sees China's future as being more like the model you've described in Taiwan and South Korea? I think it's hard to see that. So you're talking about this concept of a civilizational state. This was an essay written by Bruno Messias, who's a thoughtful former Portuguese politician. And so he was writing about this concept, which thinkers like Martin Jakes and others have also posited as a way to understand China in particular, but also other countries. Turkey would be one. Bruno even argues that Europe could become a civilizational state. And so that's a, it's a slightly more conservative vision, not so much the kind of liberal neutral state that you get out of thinkers like John Rawls, which has tended to be the way liberals in the UK and US think about things. I think it's hard to think 
that China is going to move in that direction after more than a decade of growing gradually more into a Leninist, neo-totalitarian state. I mean, it used to be the case as you and your listeners will know, that in a sense, if you were a dissident in Hong Kong, the idea was that you just wait long enough and eventually China would come to you and China would turn into either a version of Hong Kong or a version of Singapore. China seems to be heading in the other direction from these relatively more liberal models at the moment. And so that creates a tension within the region. So I think one of the things that you will see over the coming decades is in a sense, the, the world will have these three dominant rule setting super powers in America, the European Union and China. But for China to take its place, what it sees as its rightful place as the leading power in East Asia and push the United States further towards the periphery of the region, it has to gain greater influence with the states around it. And many of those states are rather skeptical of China. Taiwan is the most obvious case because China wants to take over Taiwan. But Japan, Vietnam, the Philippines, Australia, a lot of the countries that kind of ring China's periphery are pretty skeptical about the direction that China is going in. Singapore finds itself exquisitely caught in the middle of this. It has an ethnic Chinese majority. It's the only country in Southeast Asia for which that is true. Therefore, it has historical ties to China, but it's also has more recent, very good relations with the US. And so it's almost the kind of paradigmic case of a Southeast Asian country, which doesn't want to have to choose between these two superpowers as they fight it out for the future of Asia over the coming decades. And I suppose the question for they and many other of the middle powers, the smaller countries, is are they going to be able to manage that or will ultimately they have to choose between one or the other. One of the elements of this conversation, of course, is that so much relies on the central authority in China. So when one talks about what is the future of China, in many ways, one is talking about the thoughts of a single individual or certainly a very small group of people. And from the outside, you look at the way in which the COVID pandemic has played out, the massive damage that it's done to what was left of America's kind of moral authority. And you think, well, this is a huge opportunity for China. But part of the hegemony that America enjoyed when it was in that position was cultural. It was to do with the fact that whatever critique one might have of it, there was a kind of sense that American values represented partly in kind of mass culture. And we talked about that at the beginning of our conversation, but also in these kind of liberal democratic principles added to the sheer brute power which lay behind American military, but also its economic power. So is there no reason to believe that China, faced with the possibility now of being able to kind of move towards much greater power, will also want to think about the image that it presents and not simply rely upon its sheer kind of economic weight, its kind of infrastructure weight, as it were. Maybe I'm being naive, but I would have thought if I was a Chinese leader, I think, well, here's an opportunity not just to have power, but to be admired as the rising power. China desperately wants that. It wants people to admire its system. It doesn't have the same American impulse or Soviet impulse that others should copy its system precisely. What the Chinese government really wants is to ensure that its own system is safe. It wants to ensure its own regime survival and therefore it needs to build power out into the world to ensure that that happens. But the Chinese political culture is a 
You know, it's a very curious thing. So you might think that China would have wanted to show much more global leadership during the crisis, step into the shoes of the United States as it vacated institutions like the G20. But China hasn't really done that, in part, I think, because it simply doesn't aspire to play that same role in the international system as the United States has done. And equally, as you say, at the moment, China isn't a fully-fledged superpower. It has an enormous economy with huge economic linkages, but it doesn't have the same military, cultural superiority, you use the word hegemony, as the United States did in the unipower moment. So China is kind of you know, feeling its way, often rather erratically, testing the boundaries of what other countries will put up with. And sometimes it comes across as if it's doing that in a rather sort of surly, grumpy, aggressive way. And I think that's just part and parcel of being a rising power. You try and work out how far you can push people to begin to get what you want. Then you see when they complain and there's a certain kind of inherent tension and aggressiveness in pushing those boundaries to see as you test the system to make it more the kind of system that you would like to see that's amenable to your interests and kind of reflects your preferences. Then you have to you know, go up against people. Sometimes you can do that by giving them money or building them bridges or railways or all the things that China has done around the world. But sometimes you have to kind of show your muscle. And that means that you rub people up the wrong way. And I think a lot of that is what China has begun to do again in the aftermath of the crisis, where it's been in quite aggressive form across a number of fronts, whether that's in Hong Kong, in the Taiwan Straits, in the mountains of the Himalayas, even in the UK with the way that it's been sort of talking about the nuclear power station and Huawei and and the public backlash that has come along with that. I mean, I think that's what it's like to deal with a superpower in the making. There's going to be a lot of tensions as they begin to push the boundaries of the old system and try and remake it in their own image. I interviewed Emery Slaughter from New America last week for an RSA event, and I asked her about the Democrats' attitude to China. And, and certainly she, and she's obviously an important voice within the Democrats, said that in the end, America had to find a way of engaging positively with China because it was impossible to imagine how you could address particularly climate change, but also other global issues without working with China. So my final question to you, James, which in a way you've got a unique insight for, you've worked at the heart of the British government, and there you've been living in Asia and more recently in Southeast Asia over the last few years. What do you think the West's approach to China should be if ultimately collaboration is the best thing for the world? Yeah, it's a great question. It would surprise you, I think, to know the number of countries around Asia who are rather nervous about the prospects of Joe Biden. So I think for people like us, we see Trump as such an kind of unalloyed menace that it's very hard to believe that anyone except a you know, red hat wearing Republican core voter could support him. But I was in Japan just before coronavirus hit. And it was pretty clear amongst the Japanese elite that they very much like to have Trump back and they thought that Biden would be a much worse choice. You get similar feelings out of that in India. You know, the more a country is worried about China, the more likely they are actually to quite like Trump because they don't really care very much what he does to the internal fabric of the US, but they like the fact that he's tough on China, on trade and on a number of other areas. And so in this part of the world, although I think probably most people would prefer to see a kind of more traditional form of reasonable American leadership. There's at least some people who are so worried about China that they would rather have Trump back. 
what do I think they should do? I mean, I, I think in a sense, you have to recognize that America can't fend off China on its own. And so the way to do this is to take a tougher approach to China that has clearer boundaries, but one in which you're working together with you know, your friends and allies, some of whom share your own system of government and some are more likely just to share your own interests. China's weakness in this part of the world is actually it's there are many more countries that would prefer a form of the status quo than to transition to a form of Chinese hegemony. And that's been America's traditional sort of strongest bargaining chip, that it has this amazing network of alliances which keep China, if not contained under a formal policy of containment, then you know severely constrain its ability to do what it wants to do. And so I think there is no particular contradiction between having a, a tougher policy on China, but one where the, the US is in a sense multilateral because it's if not working through formal multilateral institutions, it's working through networks that include other countries. That, I think, is what Biden would have to do under almost any circumstances. So I think the idea of going back to a kind of traditional policy of engagement and hoping that China would turn into a version of Hong Kong or Singapore, almost nobody believes that that is the way to go now. And, and so what you're trying to do is find the right posture or framework in which to have a more kind of combative and confrontational policy with China over the next decade. Wow, that's a slightly pessimistic, but very powerful ending to our conversation, James. I'm very grateful to you. There's just one last question before you go, because our conversation has ranged far and wide. It's been absolutely fascinating. Not a great deal of levity in it, though. So I'm just inviting you to end it with a smile by telling us whether during lockdown, coming to an end now, did you follow the example of other people who learned some kind of new skill, baking bread or something like that? You, I, I think you may have heard me on other podcasts say that the most impressive example I've had is Kevin Rudd, who was rereading the original works of Chinese Marxism. Ha! Well, I can't, I can't beat Kevin Rudd, but I have been learning Chinese. So in a feat of tiger parenting, we decided that we would put our eldest son, who's five years old, into Mandarin immersion, which you can do in this part of the world. So he's been learning Chinese for three years now. His Chinese is pretty good. And it got to a point where we suddenly had to start homeschooling him. And Mandarin immersion sounded like a great idea when he was being taught by trained bilingual professionals, but a pretty terrible idea when he was being taught by my wife and I, who don't speak a word of Mandarin. And so I have been sort of frantically using the Duolingo app to try and get a very basic understanding in Mandarin, which on the one hand is a completely fatalistic exercise because Mandarin is so difficult that you're never going to achieve anything close to functional proficiency. But it's been very fascinating, both just just to get a very basic understanding of how the language system works, but also to use Duolingo itself, which is kind of widely admired as a clever, gamified way of learning. And it's vastly more effective than the, the way that we used to learn French as school kids or try and learn conversational French using cassettes or whichever way one used to have done it back in the day. So that's been interesting. And I'm going to kind of persevere with that. I'm on a 50-day streak, and I, the app tells me I now know 195 characters. You've got to know 2,000 before you have any chance of reading a newspaper. So I reckon if we had this conversation next year, I might have got there. So we'll see how we go. I shouldn't say this because it'll depress you. I got 125 days freak in French and then I stopped it for a month and I couldn't remember anything I'd learned. And we've gone over time, but I can't resist telling you this story about a mutual friend of ours who, who shall remain nameless. But his very ambitious wife brought in a tutor to teach his children Mandarin. And then after a few months or maybe a couple of years, they had a friend around who was a native Mandarin speaker who started chatting to the tutor. And when the tutor left, pointed out to the fury 
of my friend's wife, that this tutor had an extremely strong provincial accent. So therefore, he was teaching the children to speak Mandarin in the kind of form that Peter Kay might teach someone to speak English. And <laughs> when they went to China, people would be bemused by them having this strong provincial accent. So uh, at least Duolingo doesn't bear that threat. James, it's been fantastic speaking to you. I can recommend again your wonderful book, Billionaire Raj, and I hope that one day we will see each other in person again. Thank you, James. Thanks so much, Matthew. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.